This episode is part one of a two-part series where Ryan and I discuss two articles written by the White Coat Investor in his disparagement of the infinite banking concept. We had fun. Hope you enjoy. Thank you for listening. Okay, welcome to the Banking with Life podcast. I'm your host, James Nethery. And I'm your co-host, Ryan Griggs. And so we've been pre-gaming here for about an hour and a half, and apparently we don't have that recorded, so it won't wind up on B-roll. Right, Ninja? Hello. <laughs> it's so, been a minute since we've done this. Yeah, this is, today is uh, January 30, and we haven't sat down here at the table, you and I, since early December of 2020, yeah. that, that tragic year. I had a great year. I don't know. Well, let me say, uh, uh, tragic is probably not the best word. Treachery is probably oh, better. Yeah, I had a great year too. I mean, the clients had a great year. Everybody had a great year, except for uh, the people who watch the news. Just stop watching the news. Is the exactly. answer exactly? Oh, so we have, well, we you, have you can't hardly go anywhere. I was talking to a friend yesterday. He went into a store. He doesn't mm -hmm. wear a mask. You know, we're in Texas, and I think there's a mandate, maybe city, county, across the state. I don't really know. But uh, he's like, he was just sharing with me. He's like, yeah, James, I was just walking into a, you know, a grocery store, and I didn't have a mask on. And a little young lady at the toward the front kind of looked at me like she wanted to say something, but didn't. And I just went in and. You know, did my shopping, was checking out, and some lady 20 feet in front of her, front of him, said, oh my gosh, could you get into another line? Some of us have uh, respiratory issues, but we know it's all fake news to you. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm just saying, it's like, my goodness, uh, it's like Stockholm Syndrome, Stockholm Cindy, just stop, just quit. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Feel better now? I do feel better. And we had a call. You and I had a call. We, we did some modest degree of preparation and discussed topics that we want to... No, wait a minute. We had one conversation and said, okay, hey, what do we want to plan out for 2021? What kind of topics do we want to talk about? And this was over a month ago, I believe. Mm -hmm. Right. And so we came up with about 10 or 15 topics. And we haven't really spoke about that since. And so we show up here Saturday morning. I have a empty... You know, legal pad, as usual. And Mr. Griggs came prepared, man, with, I mean, documentation after documentation after documentation. And then said, well, no, we talked about this. Yeah, we briefly mentioned <laughs> it in one call. <laughs> so where this comes from, and we did, so for New Year's, you've seen the New Year's episode. If you haven't, you should watch it. James got triggered. People love that. I've had a lot of clients tell me they enjoyed that. I enjoyed it. So go watch that if you haven't seen it. But we were discussing uh, a hit piece, a hit, hit video piece that Dave Ramsey put out. Um, and that went well. I thought it went well. I had a good time. And so it made me think of another uh, popular hit piece kind of thing on IBC. Uh, it, it's White Coat Investor uh, is the website. Uh, so if you've heard of Tom Woods, he's a historian and economist and podcaster, and he's got a listener group that I'm somehow still a part of. And like whenever IBC is it. when IBC whenever IBC is brought up there, which is far too infrequently in my opinion, but whenever it's brought up there, there's one particular guy I don't know who it is, and if I did, I wouldn't say his name, but who always says, "Oh, this is a scam," and you know. You dummy, don't you know that white coat investor already tackled this? 
And, oh. I, and, I've, and I've seen it come up <laughs> enough times to the point where I now think of it every now and then. And so I thought, well, let's go and see what his articles are. So pulled it up. He's got a December 2012 article, which according to him was his first piece of commentary on the infinite banking concept. The title of the article is A Twist on Whole Life Insurance, published December 3rd, 2012. And then a much more recent one is Seven Truths About Infinite Banking, and then parentheses, he's got Bank on Yourself. That was published in November of 2020, so just a few months ago. Uh, so we want to discuss <laughs> you do <laughs> i'm like i have no it's all noise to me but whatever nothing new i mean what i that's have the, read yeah that's the overall gist is there's nothing new here yeah. uh the stuff that we would that we will say the commentary we will give is nothing that we haven't said before but uh this particular I'm a, I'm a person some things that i haven't said before <laughs> so. <laughs> Uh, so I think we should start with the 2012 one uh, because in his 2020 article, he says that honestly, very little has changed about all of this in the last eight years. Uh, if you are one of the 23 people, including my mother, who were reading this blog back then, you can <laughs> skip the rest of the article. Uh, and if this is the first time that you've heard about the concept, then read on to get the unbiased truth. Unbiased. It's unbiased truth, yeah, of course. He's unbiased. Yeah, yeah, he's course. a doctor, so he's unbiased by definition, right? So <clears throat> if you're a doctor, you must be unbiased. Um, so yeah, let's start with the 2012 one. Okay, well that's you know I perused that. I didn't highlight anything, and and <clears throat> what I did read is just you know I'm over it. It's, read this article, you know. You read Gary North, his stuff. You know, Susie Orman, her stuff, or anybody who doesn't like the idea of a salesperson, right? They're all, all the insurance guys are salespeople mm -hmm. earning a commission. You know, they don't have anything nice. So I'm sure this guy practices medicine out of the uh, kindness of his heart, right? And he doesn't get any kind of remuneration. Yeah. So anyway, I'll save my comments. I'll do my best to save my comments on the second piece. All right. Well, I'll point out that some of the factual errors here. Um, all right, first paragraph, he says that, uh, quote, you, you borrow it, you, you borrow money from your life insurance policy. Uh, no, no, you don't. You don't borrow from a policy. Um, there's a comment at the, you borrow from the insurance company, right? These loans come from the insurance company. The policy is a, is a private asset that you own. And the uh, death benefit is collateralized up to your cash value uh, when you originate a policy loan and, and receive that from the company. So it's you're not. Uh, he's you're a not, doctor. So it, what can you like bring it down for him? <laughs> and know, I'm not talking about all my physician clients. I love you. I'm talking about this particular individual. And and I the thing I don't know if it's my own mental deal but the idea comes to mind that you know oh you're just you're just talking semantics this is just you're just picking words and you're just being you know nitpicking on words no words matter and taking money from something versus borrowing money against that thing is an important conceptual distinction right uh interestingly i read i read over his mission statement 
uh, on his about on the on the website, and he refers to the importance of compounding. Okay, well, if you're taking money from uh, an account, or if you're subtracting, withdrawing, decreasing the value of something, you are interrupting compounding. Compounding requires annual, positive, regular, uninterrupted percentage gains. That's that's what compounding is. And life insurance happens to be the only asset where you can get that. But he thinks that, and, and the, so the accusation is, well, I'm just nitpicking between borrowing from versus borrowing against. Well, no, if you're borrowing from, like with a 401k, not a investment advisor, I don't have the securities licenses, don't want them, but I can read. And my understanding is that you can borrow from a 401k or other tax qualified account. All right, that's decreasing, subtracting, reducing the value in that account. And so even if it were the case that a tax qualified plan had regular annual percentage increases, which they don't because it's attached to the market, but even if that was the case, if you then borrowed from it, you would be interrupting that compounding that doesn't exist. And so with it's important in life, and that's one of the key features it's one of the many benefits with dividend paying whole life built correctly for the infinite banking concept is that the value increases each year on a guaranteed basis, uninterrupted. And you have a guaranteed contractual right to collateralize. You get both. What? Yeah. All right. So, you know, you do not borrow from a policy. You know, that reminds me of a, of a uh, conversation I had today with a gentleman that, that I greatly respect in, in the industry. Um, Mike and uh, we had a conversation and, and he said hey James I was thinking about you today and I'm like well you know thanks a lot I appreciate you thinking about me he said well you know all the stuff going on with Reddit he said the people have no idea how little control they have over their money and this guy you know he's been in the insurance industry probably longer than I have right and he's not necessarily a big you know infinite banking guy so he's like a hundred <laughs> Oh, that's, that's painful. Listen, it's been a while since we uh, since we sat down here, Mr. Greg. So uh, be gentle because it's like I know things. I know things. Okay, um, and, and where I want to go with that is you're you know you're talking about borrowing from, borrowing against, mm. and uh, you know everybody that has a stock account that's you know this guy's obviously in love with the stock market or real estate. He mentions that. Um, he doesn't talk a lot about medicine. Anyway, if you have a stock account, can't you uh, collateralize that mm. portfolio and borrow from the third-party lender, right, on margin? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, if you if you lose control of leverage, I don't care who you are or what you're doing, it can go either way for you. Yeah. And just in the news of late, uh, leverage hasn't gone very well for the hedge funds. So my point is... Um, you know, this idea of collateralizing assets and using a third-party lender's money is nothing new. I think banking is the second oldest profession in the world Mm -hmm. because somebody financed the first Mm -hmm. profession. So why can't we get over this idea of, uh, or, or, you know, just narrowing down life insurance to interest rates, dividend scales, commissions and death benefit 
Who is performing the banking function in your life? Who controls the banking function in your life? And you can't jump over that. You can it's discount. It's the question. I said before, it is the question. That is the question, period. And so, listen, while the third-party lender's throwing out money at 0% interest or half a percent, I seen an advertisement the other day, you can get a 30-year mortgage for 1.99, right? Well, listen, young Mr. Griggs, how much of your money will you loan me at 1.99? Because I will borrow every single penny Mm -hmm. at 1.99. Right. Well, when there's never a problem, there's never a problem. You tell me your interest rate's going to remain low forever? Nope. I mean, they can't. Can't. Okay, so this idea that, that, that life insurance is a bad thing because somebody gets a commission, I see that over and over. That's the most truthful thing he has mentioned here, but it's in the second article, mm-hmm. I think in the point three. But I don't, I don't want to get ahead of, the, ahead of the, the commentary. You're on the first article. Um Anyway, I digress a little bit, but you have a contractual right to collateralize that while it's compounding. What What's so difficult about that? <laughs> I mean, you, maybe you have enough money or capital to do everything in life that you want to do, and you'll never be beholden to a third-party lender. Okay. Maybe. My opinion is that a person who even theoretically is in that position needs to be challenging themselves more, because if... If you're just that comfortable, well, well, then what's next? Well, listen, if, you, if you're if you that person, you have a whole new set of issues. Yes. All right. And Uncle Guido uh, wants your money. Uh, then there's this uh, idea of this taxation, generational tax. I mean, and, and two, to buy into this negativity of life insurance, you have to discount every characteristic of life insurance. And life insurance is the only thing in the financial world that comes with a death benefit. And you tell me you don't need one? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, of course you don't. You, you're going you're gonna to self-insure. You know, you're going to accumulate all these assets. You know, if you're investing with Reddit, you know, it might work for you <laughs> where you'll um, grow your assets to the point that, you know, after you've enjoyed it, spent it, given it away, that, you know, you're going to leave all your affairs in order and you're going to leave the next generation better without life insurance. Yeah, it's possible. I'm sure. not saying it's not. Yeah. Okay. Continuing on with his other errors, he says... Uh, and you're being kind. I mean, you've only got a third um, yeah, of the page. I'm just up. getting started. Uh, he says here in this first paragraph, they, meaning the people who sell dividend-paying whole life um, under the bank on yourself, which is another moniker out there, or the infinite banking concept, those people quote unquote, say it's like getting interest-free loans with an added death benefit. Uh, and he, this is a common theme. You kind of referenced it later down the page. Uh, he makes a comparison between the interest rate charged by the life insurance company on policy loans and compares that to the what he says is the dividend rate, which is not a thing. The only, <laughs> it's a gross dividend crediting scale is the only percentage number, the only numeraire that's ever quoted by a company is the gross dividend crediting scale, which is the percentage of their budget for the year that's available at the company level to fund both a contingency fund and to pay dividends 
to policy owners. The actual dividend an individual receives, and this is, I mean, I get where this comes from because Absolutely. he's right. There are agents who do talk this way. Sure. And it's like, yeah, the, the, the policy loan is interest at 5% and the dividend rate is, is five. And so you know, it's effectively an interest-free loan. You know, oh, look at that magic. No. No, you cannot, nobody can show me an illustration or a policy document where you look at an actual dividend, whether it's illustrated out in the future or an actual dividend that's been paid and, and, and show me how that is this, how that is the same percentage quoted at the gross dividend crediting scale of the premium. You, it, it won't work. Like, <laughs> and, and the, so stop trying. Like what, why? I don't I don't want to say I don't understand it because I think I do understand it. I think people are doing it because it's, it, they've been taught that that's how they should sell the product, but it's unnecessary and it's wrong. It's the same thing with this, and I enjoyed this. So there's, there was an article recently about how there was a late 2020 change in the big giant new uh, bailout bill. Uh, the CARES Act or whatever the heck it was. That's another one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and, and they changed the required interest rate that companies, that life insurance companies must use in order to account for the time value of money. In the 80s, when the modified endowment contract legislation came through, which he also gets wrong, we'll get to that, but uh, it was fixed. The, the federal government said, life insurance companies must account for the time value of money at 4%. It was just a fixed. And so you get all these agents who say, oh, you got a guaranteed 4% rate of return. It's printed right there on the illustration. It's built, it's built on a 4% basis of competition. <laughs> like, right. And so they point at that, right? Yeah. And the life insurance company will tell them, you, that's not true. You're, you're not speaking truthfully. Yeah, it's, like, it's half true, right? It's a it, there's enough there. Well, Do I can point at a number that says four percent, right? And then I can I can reference a credited or a disclosed a declared dividend scale, a five five and a half, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And it's like, wait a minute. So if you're and I've I've heard people reference it's like, well, the the base premium is buying the death benefit, buying the insurance, and the PUA is earning cash, <laughs> right? And so it's all going to earn at 4%, plus there's a 6% due. That's 10%, you know? Math is math, right? 4 plus 6 is 10. <laughs> but then I put 100 in, and I only have access to 65 or 70 or whatever it is. It's like, what happened to the 10%? And then the customer feels bamboozled. Of course. And then, and then so the agent's got to be like, well, you know, I can't really figure that out. So we'll just put 90% <laughs> to the PUA or 95% to the PUA, and we'll get closer to that marker of cash on cash comparison. And then they're still bamboozled. Yeah. Please sign. Just Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Please sign. the. Take the policy. It's so complicated that you can't understand it. So I'm going to have to break it down for you. Yeah. You know. And they're supposed to be like the presumption is that's what makes it worthy. Like if I if I don't understand if it's too complicated, if it's this big scheme, <laughs> that's what makes well, it good because it's must, so complicated. Yeah, there must be some value <laughs> hidden in there. It's yeah, like right. what? Uh so I so no, point being, no. That the idea that a policy loan is an interest-free loan is wrong. It's well, wrong in fact, and it's it's the the metaphor that the game that they play with the dividend crediting scale and the positive, that doesn't even work because the dividend, the dividend rate is not the actual, you won't experience that as an individual, right? These, well, you know, I, yeah, I understand what you're saying. <clears throat> Look, if I have, let's say I have, 
whatever the premium is. I, I pay a premium. Here's the cash value. Here's the premium. Here's the cash value. Here's the death benefit. And I'm at, I'm at that age. If I look at that dividend that was credited that year, or applied or paid mm-hmm. that year, that is a percentage scale, the declared dividend rate that I earned on that policy. It's just not going to be 5%. It's not going to be that number. Right. Yeah. But that is my 5% dividend or whatever the dividend it's is. It's your share. On. That's right. Of that of the company level. experience. Yeah. Their financial experience. Right. And, that's, and that's what it is. And, and by the way, it's contributing to your compounding. It's, it, 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 there's no taxation. It happens. You don't even have to tell the company you want it. They're going to allocate it to your policy whether you like it or not. I mean, you have to, if you want to change the election and take the money as cash or have it, you know, use it to pay an outstanding policy loan balance or use it to offset your premium. These are examples of non-forfeiture options, which this person doesn't understand. But uh, What, you mean there's some guarantees here? What? Yeah. And so there's other things you can do with it, but if you don't, which is fine, and as Nelson says, the, the default, the preferred, the, the optimal feature, the optional election is to have your dividend automatically go, go back to the policy where it is allocated to PUA premium. You know, Purchasing additional death benefit, which generates more cash value. Without Uncle Sam needing to know about it. The uh, you, you should... In my opinion, I would encourage you to purchase Nelson's six and a half hour DVD series, right? Where he gave his presentation live. And he, in that, uh, uses his 1959 State Farm policy, mm-hmm. right? And in the first 15 years of that, and he says all of this, right? He says this clearly and in his book that he used the dividend to reduce the premium for the first 15 years of that policy. And had he not done that, the difference these years later, it would have made in his total cash value and his total death benefit was phenomenal. It's unbelievable. So here's a pretty sharp guy, right? Um, 1959, now he didn't become an agent until 1964, and he was still a slow learner. It took him 15 years to change that dividend election. You know, so I'm not... It, this is it can be compli- it can seemingly be complicated yeah but when you simplify it for what's really going on it's not that complicated especially when you read stuff like this <clears throat> well does this help or hinder well it lays the groundwork i mean gosh it took us eight and a half years to get to it but at least it gives us something <laughs> well i i have i've heard of this particular uh individual or blog or whatever it is but I, I have not read anything on it. I'm like, oh wait a minute. Uh, so this is you my get apathetic, which I understand. I mean, it's, it's, I'm over it. Yeah. So it's like, listen, if how about how about I read it because you mentioned his uh, bio or something earlier mm-hmm. before the, the mission statement or about yeah, thing. But you know, he this guy's a physician. And, you know, he, he was tired of being bamboozled by financial professionals. So he had to figure out the financial world as a physician. So he read a couple of books and he read some articles, right? So how about I go read, you know, a couple of books about medicine? And, and, so, and he says he self-learned, yeah. right? Which I'm not disparaging. I'm just saying, okay, well, how about I just start? You know, spend a couple of years reading medical books and journals and maybe even the physician's desk reference manual, right? And then I'll just start giving my commentary on medicine. Mm-hmm. You know, what's the difference? That's the internet. Anybody can do that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my goodness. Anybody mm-hmm. can publish anything, right? You got a camera in your mama's basement and you can make a podcast yep. or a video. All right. Continuing. 
And um, if it's truthful, you'll probably be deplatformed. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Is next. this guy still available? Has he been deplatformed? Oh, he's well. Yeah, I mean, if you you know. tow the uh, okay. Vanguard Fidelity okay. line, you you stay online forever. Um, <laughs> all right, next, the key to making this all work is to get a non-direct recognition whole life policy. Um, half true. Now we like non-direct recognition. We've talked about that in the past and why, but that is not the key to making this work. If there were only, I've told a few clients this. If there were only direct recognition life insurance companies in the United States, then dividend paying whole life from a direct recognition life insurance company would still be the best place to build capital, right? The, it is not necessary. It's preferable that the company be non-direct recognition because it doesn't make sense why the company would reduce your share, your residual claimancy, your participation in the financial performance of the company just because you're exercising your right to take a policy loan, right? The price of a policy loan, the price of any loan, the price of credit is in the interest rate, period, done. And the company writes the contract. They get to choose. They're telling you how they're going to charge you uh, when you take a policy loan. They're deciding. And so why they have to charge you twice when you take a policy loan is, to me, it doesn't make sense. And I, I think it's just a, a way to disincentivize the policy owner from utilizing their capital, which to me is just silly, short-term minded thinking, like why a company wouldn't want one of their customers who owns the company to use the money at a rate that the company is determining in a perfectly collateralized situation, why wouldn't I want that? But It's the same attitude that every other financial institution has. How much mm. of your money does your bank want you to withdraw? None. Right, yeah. I mean, how much of uh, your money do they want you to put on deposit? Every penny. And now, if you put too much in the bank, they're going to hound you. It's oh like gosh. with all these great investment opportunities, right? Because yeah. you don't know what to do with your own money. All right. And then, then you go, with the direct recognition policy, when you borrow money from your policy, the which you don't do, but this is a quote. When you borrow money from your policy, the insurance company first subtracts the amount of the loan from the cash value, then calculates the dividend on a lesser amount. And that's just, I mean, no. There's no subtraction from the cash value. Um, so yes, is non-direct recognition preferable? I think so. We argued why. Uh, it is not the key. All right, moving forward. Um, there must be one key in here. There must be one key. And it, right. it is, and I found it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, in his discussion of paid-up additions, he says, quote, the IRS limits how much more money you can put in per the IRS at a certain point it's the policy. It's no longer a life insurance policy, but an investment called a modified endowment contract, and it loses the tax benefits accorded to life insurance policies, end quote. All right, no. Um, a modified endowment contract or a MEC is still a life insurance policy. The policy doesn't stop being a policy just because it receives a different tax treatment. A, a modified endowment contract, by definition, is a life insurance policy. There used to be life insurance that you could buy, you can't buy it anymore, called endowment policies that would pay out at a certain date during your lifetime in the future. The policy would endow while you're around, you get a big payout. Can't buy it anymore because the government doesn't like you to be better off. And so, but the modified endowment <coughs> contract 
is just that. It's a, a life insurance policy that receives a modified endowment contract tax status. Um, so again, half true. Yes. Can that happen to a contract? Sure. Well, look, he says, he says in here, it's not that hard to accidentally make the mm -hmm. proceeds of your policy taxable. The insurance company and the agent are supposed to ensure that this doesn't happen. No, no. Mm -mm. It's your it's, yeah. responsibility. You, the contract owner, it's yours. Now, uh, granted, most insurance companies that I'm aware of, all of them, would notify the contract owner if a policy became a modified endowment contract. Right? And if you have an agent that's still in the business, right, is still around to answer the phone whenever there's a question or a concern, um, and they're worth their salt, they would be notified as well, right? And they would yeah. reach out. <clears throat> but it's not their responsibility. It's your responsibility. And then you have the opportunity to, quote, unquote, unmack a policy. And it's a... And it's really a time-sensitive issue, all right? Yeah. Because once a policy does become a mech, it's always a mech, and you can't unmech it. But if I received what's in the industry called a mech letter, you know, I sent too much premium into the policy, and it caused the policy to be classified as a mech. I'm going to get a mech letter, and the company's going to ask me. They're, they're going to tell me, look, you're, you know, you're the smartest guy on earth, sending us all this money, but it's caused your policy to be a mech. And it's my choice. Send me back the premium that caused the policy to mech. Mm-hmm. Have that premium applied to an outstanding loan? Um, I'm just or shred the check. I mean, it's like I had this. I had this happen. <laughs> so I have a when I went about this the incorrect way back in 2016. I got one of these agents from one of the big four. I mean, I made all the mistakes and <clears throat> wanted to pay a certain kind of PUA, built the policy in the same with the same structure of the policy in equipment financing. So like, I'm going to do what, exactly what Nelson did and thought that that's what I got. Well, year two comes around and I'm now in the business and it was later, it was maybe year three or four. And I'm going to go pay my PUA for the year. And I had an idea of what it was. And so I go, uh, first of all, talk to the, Asked my agent, hey, I wanted to confirm what the maximum PUA that I could pay is. Oh, I don't know. Oh, of course you didn't know, right? <laughs> and like, well, I have to ask the company. Okay, ask the company. Two weeks go by, I didn't hear anything. So I call the company myself. The guy on the phone tells me how much PUA I can pay. I'm like, great. Stay on the phone. I'm going to pay it right now. Good. It's done. Wonderful. Thought the PUA was paid up for the year. The next day, I get an email. The last PUA payment you made caused your policy to become a mech. I'm like, what? <laughs> we just had this conversation. And I'm like, well, then send the money back. Like, so it, my point is that it's a legitimate concern that people have because they know a mech is what is what it is. The tax status is dramatically inferior. Uh, and we don't want it. And we know that. And the way I build contracts today, and I go through this with every client, <coughs> is like, this is your mech limit that you can see on the page. And here's your maximum the, the, the maximum PUA that the contract will accept and the maximum the contract by the way I, I harp on this but those are two different numbers they that's exactly right you're saying this right <clears throat> and which is true there's no question that this is true but every illustration every life insurance illustration shows a MEC premium mm -hmm. that does not mean your policy can accept that premium right 
So whenever you say you show your clients, here's the MEC premium, and this is what you can pay into the PUA. Two different things. Two different things, but they're built. It's built correctly. And this guy goes on to mention, you know, built correctly like that's some esoteric thing. (laughs) Um, And it's not esoteric. It's being broken down in plain English right here. Right now, I know you got to listen, you know, 30 minutes into a podcast and uh, episode to to get to some of these nuggets. And I know many of you do. Wing, he does his mm-hmm. uh, mowing of his lawn on Saturdays. We appreciate you. That's a shout out for you. Um, I'm just saying that just because your policy has a MEC premium doesn't mean that your policy was built to accept that premium. That's so correct. It is. I mean, it's very important. So we're just talking about this casually, mm-hmm. right? And I just that's why I'm bringing this out built correctly that's just one aspect mm-hmm. of a policy being built correctly and if i might add to that i assure you that that mech limit on our clients my clients your clients policies is reasonable suitable and within their actual abilities mm-hmm. so this idea that um you know you got to have a three hundred thousand dollar premium you know, or $100,000 premium or these great big numbers. Yep. And then you've got to go borrow against every asset that you own, probably a HELOC, you know, <laughs> by these, by these quote unquote, you know, fiduciary advisors that they can't even spell the word um, <laughs> to make the first year premium, right? Or well, where's the second year premium going to come from and the third year premium. Mm-hmm. And no, it's a terrible place to put money. So we never had any idea or any Let me just really do it once conscious thought of paying a premium beyond the one year. Yeah. Or it's so good. I only want to do it once. Yeah. We're <laughs> going we're gonna to put pennies in from here on out, which is right up the alley of this guy's thinking because, you know, he says somewhere in here that, you know, his whole idea is to shred all of expenses completely. All right. Well, you, you, you can't live this life without expenses, young man. Yeah. Anyway, okay. All right, next. Buying a life insurance policy is a long-term deal. True. Those premiums come due every year, whether you like it or not, and without concern for your current financial situation. Lose your job? Disabled? Retired? Wanted to cut back? The policy doesn't care. With this particular policy, you pay until you're 100. Well, his investments care, though, right? Yeah. Yeah, Wall Street cares. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. Wall Street cares. Um, Yeah, so no. right? And and we get these, you know, and I I go through it, whether people ask about it or not. Worst case scenario, what happens? You have a total permanent cancellation of all future income, right? Your income has succumbed to cancel culture, and you're not going to make another dollar ever again. Until they come out with universal income. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So what happens in that scenario? Unlikely to happen, probably won't happen, but we can worst case scenario it. Well, if the, there's caveats here, if the policy's built correctly, if you funded it, it, meaning you paid your PUA premium early on in the policy, let's say the first three to four years, which you should have a fairly good idea, a, a fairly good understanding of your ability to do so given your current financial situation. If you do that, the policy is secure enough to the point that if you never wanted to pay another dollar out of pocket to the life insurance company in premium ever again, the policy will remain in force. And even if you didn't do that, you could exercise one of these what are called non-forfeiture options. Options that you can put into place that 
is your right as a policy owner to select them that will keep the policy in force, keep you in a position where you don't have to forfeit the policy, hence the name non-forfeiture option, without having to pay continued premium out of pocket. Uh, and there's various ones, that, a whole lot of options, reduce paid up, use the dividend, take policy loans, all sorts of different things that you can do to keep the policy in force. And so, no, uh, this idea that the policy doesn't care, first of all, the policy doesn't have agency, you know, it's just, it is, it is what it is. Uh, Does it have feelings? Yeah. <laughs> and so it's, it's, it's <clears throat> in this particular instance, the, the true circumstance is entirely the opposite of what he's saying. The policy is built to be resilient and to provide for you in those worst case scenario type situations, right? That's the whole, not the whole reason, but it's a fundamental reason why you would want to take control of the banking function, why you would want to systematically accumulate capital under your own contractual control is if stuff like this goes down. If a 2008 happens, if you know you get caught up in a GameStop Reddit scheme or wh whatever the hell it is. It, I hear they're going to jump on gold and silver. Yeah, sure they are. Short it. Yeah. So you're, you're in a, you have a contractual right <laughs> to leverage your cash value, take a policy loan, use it for whatever it is you're gonna use it for. In fact, if you implement the infinite banking concept diligently over your lifetime, pay a high premium for as long as you're able and willing to pay it, and maybe even expand your system as your income rises, you're gonna put yourself in a position when you do retire, when you do want to, if you retire, when you do wanna stop working as much, or you wanna change jobs, or you wanna start a business, or you wanna travel, you'll be in a position where you've got such high annual cash value appreciation such that you're able to take a, a regular annual policy loan to finance your lifestyle uh, on a tax-free private basis without permission. Um, There's a lot so there. It, it's literally the opposite <coughs> of what he's yeah. saying here. So look, let me, let me, I have a couple of comments here. Non-forfeiture options only exist in whole life. We continually, I continually get questions on universal life. Why not universal life? And it's in the policy design. It's designed, you know, it's flawed at the design and it has no guarantees. The guarantees reside with the life insurance company, which violates the very essence of insurance. Okay. And now what? Mr. Griggs is saying, look, the future is unknown, period. You don't know the future. I don't know the future. Mr. Griggs does not know the future. So who knows what kind of income you're going to enjoy in two years, five years, two, you know, three years, 20 years. Who knows? I don't know. And you don't either. So this broad statement of properly designed and used by many different people. This is not new terminology. Mm -hmm. It's used in the infinite banking world, you know, and has been for 15 years. What does that mean? And it could mean, and I'll bet you it does mean something different depending on what agent and advisor you're talking to. Within their, you know, frame of understanding, they're trying to build it correctly or properly. Even the individuals that, that, incorrectly build them <laughs> you know i think believe they're building them correctly and then i also understand that you know you get into the infinite banking world and you start listening to different podcasts reading different things and it seems like there's a potential squabble or apparent squabble between you know what i think is right and what somebody else thinks is right versus what you think is right so the onus really is on you but whenever i use whenever mr greg uses a term correctly structured, 
it includes this idea of unknown future cash flows. Right. So if the policy is structured, capitalized correctly, and you should practice infinite banking, this idea of capital accumulation over your whole lifetime. Now, I don't think that you should wait till passive income time to retire because these tri- or passive income time to, to, to travel, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And especially before the, you know, the, the vaccine is forced upon us and you have to take a vaccine before you can travel. Yeah. Um, some of the greatest things that we've done as a family is finance travel. Right, so that's a, a continuing and ongoing thing. Um, but to say that a policy is structured correctly, properly structured, or whatever terminology that you're using to express the correct structure of a policy, it includes the ability with several options, the non-forfeiture options, the high cash value, to be able to maintain that policy, whether you write a check for the premium that's required, the contractual obligation, or you have the ability to write the check, the higher check that is a contractual right. I know we've said this many times that you, the owner, should be aware of your contractual obligations and you should be aware of your contractual rights. So the obligation is there is going to be a premium paid in a life insurance policy whether you write that check or not for it to remain in force. And I agree that, that oh, I say that policies are designed to pay a premium. There's no question about that. If you've got a policy that's paid to age 100, it is designed for a premium to be paid to age 100. If it's built correctly, then it puts the position you, the owner, puts you in the position of either having the right to write a check Mm-hmm. or have the policy pay its own premium. And there are several different ways to do that. Mm-hmm. You mentioned one, the non-forfeiture. Right? So I'm just expanding upon this idea and the statement of correctly built, correctly designed, and it is important. And the non-forfeiture options only existing in whole life insurance. They do not exist in universal life, variable universal life, indexed universal life, or any other. Type. And why would they be? They're non-guaranteed products. And so the companies can't offer guaranteed non-forfeiture options. No, the only thing that they can guarantee you is that they have the contractual right to raise the premium. <laughs> or reduce the death benefit or drain your cash account value. <laughs> well, those those would be defensive tactics. To hide the, the higher premium. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Okay. All right. So next, if you stop paying premiums, any loans you've taken out become fully taxable? No, not necessarily, right? We just talked about how there's various options you can exercise so that if you are in a position where you are want or have to stop paying premiums out of pocket, that the policy will remain in force. So long as the policy's in force, there's, so long as there's, there's no lapse, right? No cancellation of the policy, there is no taxable event. And companies always harp on this, I guess. I don't know exactly why, but it's like, you know, there could be, you know, if you take a policy loan, there could be potential tax consequences. There could be. And there could be. <clears throat> and that's true, but. And there will be when your thinking is not correct. Right. There will be. Right. I mean, whenever you put pennies in, right, and, and collateralize as much as possible for mm-hmm. as long as possible, mm-hmm. the. Uh, the outcome of that thinking is going to be substantial loans that you're not going to repay. And then the probability of a taxable consequence is 
is goes up with every penny you take out that you don't extreme. pay back. Extreme. That's why Nelson says repay your policy loans. Be an honest banker. <clears throat> Oh yeah. Uh, a particular illustration in a particular book comes to mind as we talk about that. <laughs> well, they they rectified that, that with the second illustration oh, added yeah. to the oh, book. Good. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, what's next? Uh, proponents often recommend pulling money out of your four hundred one k IRA house via refinancing or home equity loan, etc. And he's upset by that. And I, I mean, I get that. You know, that's. Yeah. Stop. Now, do people do that? Uh, yes, clients do. Right. We want to be in an informed. And position some proponents to do it. encourage that. I do not. Right. Some proponents say that's the only way to do it. You know, it's just it's something that's available. It's, there's nothing. There's no magic to it. Yeah. Are we still on the first article? Yeah, but I'm almost done with it. All right. Um, I thought this was good. He said. Uh, Additional Under the additional complexity headline, he says, everywhere else in the financial world, additional layers of complexity favor salesmen and the companies they represent. Why would this be any different? This being the IBC. Why would this be any different? In fact, as you search the internet, you quickly realize that any discussion of these comments quickly breaks down into the proponents who suggest that you need their expertise to understand it and the detractors who don't seem to completely understand it. <laughs> I couldn't find anything anywhere that seemed to be a straightforward, unbiased analysis. Um, you know, this appeal out there today about we need to be unbiased you know you, you can't have you, you can't have an opinion or, or favor one way or the other like you know it's like if you're thirsty and you want water you're you're biased towards finding water like if you know that something's good and you want to share it with like yeah no i'm not unbiased why would i want to remain unbiased no i'm, I'm biased towards the correct financial philosophy Freedom. Yeah. But, oh, <laughs> Liberty. but, that, but that, that makes me, the sales methods and opaque nature all screams scam to me. Well, I mean, again, half true. There's a lot of people out there who do sound like little scam artists. <clears throat> well, there's some scam artists in every profession, even the medical profession. Yeah. Oh. You can't malign. Them. What? <laughs> Tell me I'm wrong. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's all science, right? Until there's only two genders. <laughs> I mean, it's situational science, situational medicine. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like situational, you know, opinions and finance. What's new? But yeah, let's just malign them all. I get accused of painting with broad brushes all the time, which, you know, um, maybe I do, but I'm very opinionated. Got a lot of, got a lot of canvas to cover. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, in the conclusion, I'm obviously not running down. I'm not running down to the... Uh, local whole life salesman to start banking on myself. No kidding. Yeah. Yeah. No and kidding. you shouldn't. I mean, honestly, some people, it's like, we're not a good fit. And it's for the best. <laughs> you <laughs> right. keep doing what you're doing. Um, in my opinion, the downsides, the downsides outweigh some significant positives. You're better off not mixing investing and insurance. And I could talk for the rest of the day on the difference between investing and insurance. What what we are not doing in <laughs> dividend paying whole life is mixing investing and insurance. Oh my uh, the whole goal of investing is to give up control over capital to someone else yeah. who's going to go use that money and pay you a rate of return. That's the That's what investing is. In life insurance, we are doing the opposite. We are, in fact, maximizing and retaining and strengthening your control and access to your capital. 
What? It's the it's the exact well, opposite. Then why wouldn't Wall Street embrace this? Oh, they tried yeah, to exactly. with universal law. Yeah. <laughs> And so people ask, you know, why haven't more people heard about this? There's your reason. There's your reason. How many financial institutions are going hog wild telling you how to retain and grow control over your own money? Well, who wants to get up, you know, tomorrow and talk about life insurance? Yeah. Or run down to the local uh, insurance sale. I office. do. My clients do. My gosh, <laughs> they can't wait. All right, so that's 2012. That's supposed to be the key main article and quote unquote not not very little has changed about all of this in the last eight years or so end quote um no what he's saying is nothing in his mind has changed in the last eight years or so because he arrived long ago and surprise surprise a doctor has the arrival syndrome what yeah listen i know doctors i have i have I uh, have clients who are professors of They'll agree. economics and business, and they're, your, they your, agree. Your, <laughs> your physicians, your clients, they will agree. They do. They, they do. hang out with other physicians. Yeah. And they're not all that way. I'm not painting with a broad brush, you know. All right. He's probably a real estate expert, too. I'm sure. Right. 2012. I'm 2012. Right, can we wrap this one up and like do a two-parter here before we go on to the next, you know? You do that? Yeah. Say this is part one. Okay, so in, in this episode, we've covered part one, the 2012 episode from White Coat Investor, and uh, tune in next time for the second part where we'll cover the November 2020 update article. I'm so excited! All right, thanks for listening. Cool. Thank you for joining us on the Banking with Life podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, make sure to like and subscribe and click on that little notification bell. Otherwise, join us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher for weekly content.